1: And welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers and scholars of African-American life, culture, arts and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young. And today I had the opportunity to speak with Kwesi Kanadu, the author of The Akan Diaspora in the Americas, published by Oxford University Press 2010. In this book, Panadu focuses on the Akan diaspora, originating in West Africa and having experiences in such places as Guyana, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, former Danish and Dutch colonies, and North America. The study takes place between the 16th and 19th centuries, and although the Akan never formed a majority among other Africans in the Americas, their leadership skills, their political organization... Their culture is archived in the musical traditions, language, and patterns of African diasporic life far outweighed their sheer numbers. Therefore, Kunaru argues that a composite Akan culture calibrated between the Gold Coast and Forest Fringe made the contributions of the Akan diaspora possible. During this lively interchange, Kunaru translates and explains Akan proverbs He talks about a spiritual and temporal return to Africa and about being a father to lovely daughters. Let's listen in.
0: Today we are talking to Kwesi Konadu about his new book, The Akan Diaspora in the Americas. And I've read this book and I find it very interesting and exciting. I told Kwesi that I thought that it was definitely a book that was written for an academic audience, but it's very accessible to um, mainstream readers and provides us with um, a historical background on um, the Akan people and their relationship to the Americas. So uh, I can highly recommend this book. Paisi, I wonder if you could uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure, and thank you for having me uh, as a guest on this program. Uh, well, I was born um, in Jamaica in the Caribbean, um, but my mother's um, family are from Ghana, West Africa. So, in, in many ways, I, you know, reflect um, the idea of the African diaspora in terms of um, the um, locations of, you know, my culture identity. Um, in terms of my schooling, I uh, did my graduate at Howard and Cornell University um, in African history but also in African American Studies um, and so I try to bring those um, skills to bear on you know the projects I've worked on including this book that we're talking about this morning uh, I should note to your viewers however that you know, I guess part of my biography is being a father and I'm actually home right now with my two younger daughters one is nine months old And the other is two and a half. So you may hear them in the
0: background uh, in the course of our conversation this morning. All right. That's no problem with us. As a matter of fact, we congratulate you on being um, a dad. Thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome. So tell us, how did you come to write uh, this book, The Akan Diaspora in the Americas?
2: Well, this project actually started in 2001. And then I was a an um, early graduate student, but I was also on a more personal note, um, given the brief uh, excerpt of my biography that I've already shared, that uh, I actually had a dream. Um, and the dream was based upon prior years, since I was maybe a teenager, um, digging into my family history. And in the dream, I was told that I needed to go back to Ghana. If I wanted to know more about my great great grandmother, and so that was it. Uh, I was on a plane in 2001, and I was in um, spent a few times throughout the country, from the coastal area that is the capital of Accra um, to Kumasi uh, in the central uh, portion of Ghana, up until um, a town where I essentially have made my other home in the past decade, um, called Teshie. And so it was actually that dream that actually led me uh, physically to Ghana and therefore um, into some of the questions that have uh, been posed by and that have been uh, engaged by a number of scholars that focus on um, culture transfer in the Americas, uh, certainly the mechanism of enslavement, international international enslavement. And um, some of the uh, larger questions about identity, about memory. About, uh, of course, um, um, culture and its transformation in the Americas. And so I, I decided to focus on the Akan diaspora, um, one, because it was neglected among um, uh, mushrooming of other scholarship on other African diasporas. Uh, so the neglected portion gave me motivation to uh, research this diaspora. And secondly, I thought that. Now, these kinds of histories, that is diaspora histories, are histories without closure, which means that uh, they're unfolding uh, to the point that they imprint upon, they, you know, condition the present. And so there's a lot of movement between Akan people from what is now Ghana, West Africa, and um, diasporic Africans who were born in the Americas. A lot of engagement, a lot of um, um, cross-current movement, whereby, since the 1960s, a number of a large number and growing number of diasporic Africans in the Americas have returned to Ghana, either as visitors, as tourists, as business persons, um, as full scholars, exchange students. But more importantly, they have actually um, created new homes whereby they have intermarried with uh, a number of the uh, local population. They've had children who are in two or three generations now. So it was these current movements, across the Atlantic um, that really provided the second motivation to
0: do this book. Nice. And could you define um, or explain the title? Um, You've given us some information about um, the Akan people in the relationship to um, Ghana, Uh, but when you use the term diaspora and Americas in your title, what exactly are you referring to?
2: Oh, that's an excellent question, Um, but I think I'll deal with the Diaspora first, and I get to the Americas. Um, The idea of Diaspora, as um, the book tries to engage, uh, is ongoing, um, because there's no stable or clear uh, parameters as to what constitutes a Diaspora or a Diaspora. Uh, It is as contested as the idea of Atlantic history, which is also very popular, um my use of diaspora is not so much the idea of dispersal, but looking to the idea of movement. Uh, in this case, non-consensual movement, whereby you have, um, at least according to my tabulations, uh, at least uh, just over a million, uh, perhaps about 10% of the total volume of Africans who left their homelands between 1526 and until about 1888. Uh, the con diaspora was approximately approaches those small but are important numbers uh, and so I'm looking at this, this coercive movement of people, um, kind of a one way voyage whereby they became um, captives turned into commodities and then of course um, turned into captive commodities on these um, plantations but also other kinds of um, terrain that was based on timber and other kinds of um, economic production uh, so Diaspora, for me, at least in this case, uh, is most so um, of the coercive movement of, the uh, movement of a group of people uh, who came to form a composite. That is, they um, can they De- they can were never a single identity. It was always a composite whereby they uh, can have a matrilineal system where they would incorporate um quote, strangers cultural strangers into their communities by mm-hmm. uh intermarrying and then the second okay. di- generation of, of the offspring or the offspring okay. will be assimilated into the con um cultural matrix so to speak and by doing so they would uh adopt and become a uh, in language uh in mannerism in general cultural outlook um in name um which are it's important cultural marker. Uh, and so they kind has always been a composite, you know, uh, kind of identity, composite kind of culture, never one that was singular or, or static or not um, responsive to its, uh, you know, immediate cultural and human environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the title the referred to these kinds of people, who, for me, I think are unique in West Africa um, because they had over five centuries of interaction with um, Muslims and therefore Islam, but they never really became Islamic. Likewise, they've also had um, five centuries or more of uh, uh, interactions with um, Christians, European Christians, and Christianity. Therefore, from the Portuguese up until the British, but they never really became Christian until the early twentieth century, and even then it was with resistance. So they, you know, provide I think a very important case of a non-Islamic, non-Christian. Uh, peoples who are moving into the Americas, and I think, um, those, um, non Christian, non Islamic identities, um, you know, give us another window to look at Africans, um, who are not quote unquote Atlantic Creoles, um, and who are not either so called saltwater, um, Negroes or slaves, but, but they were, um, a composite African peoples who, uh, came with their own spiritualities, um, that was forced over a number of centuries with their own. Um, statecraft or political structures. Um, Many of them um, were skilled in firearm use long before firearms were widespread in in West Africa. Mm. Um, And therefore, that also played a very important role in the Americas when, of course, we get to this a little bit later, I'm sure, but it played a very important role in terms of uh, providing a political organizing culture for other Africans uh, in Maroon communities, for instance, in other communities where they found themselves. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Before we talk more about the specific content in the book, can you speak to um, the relevance of this historical text to uh, contemporary uh, uh, scholars in, let's say, African studies or African American studies?
2: Uh, sure. Well, I think I think the book, in all modesty, uh, contributes to both, uh, and maybe even more, that it contributes to. Uh, what is commonly referred to as African American studies, um, African diaspora studies, and certainly African studies, because you know one of the main arguments the book makes is that African diasporic history has to be read through African history first, and then concurrently with the experiences of these diasporic communities in the Americas, for instance. Um, and I think in reading those histories that way, one um, you make uh Africa as a uh a space but also as a um kind of like cultural um mnemonic for a number of um people's identities. Uh you make that uh more so central Rather than peripheral as you find Atlantic studies, Atlantic history um studies. Mm-hmm. Um two by by uh, looking at I think these important um issues, uh it also extends the boundaries of what is considered African American studies because African American studies is largely about North America rather than Central um South America or mm-hmm. including those disease. In so um my study of the Econ diaspora in Suriname, which is on the north um eastern portion of the South American continent, uh, as well as in Guyana, or what was formerly British Guyana. Uh, and in, tangentially, in Brazil, the Khan never formed a very uh, significant um, group in, in Brazil. Um, but nonetheless, the Kan kind of were there, and um, there's evidence for that in the 18th, 19th century. So it, it really extend the boundaries of what is considered African American studies, and I think um, it problematizes it, not in the sense of um, you know, postmodernist um, jargon, but it makes African American studies have to either in line with the realities of movement of African descended people, mm-hmm. rather than be bounded to North America, which is more so a function, I think, of American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. or inevitable Americanization. <laughs> um, and it also it problematizes and expands the bounds of African studies, which is also bounded to Africa, uh, not even all the islands, but Africa as a um, kind of insularity. Geographic reality. So now we have to think about, okay, well, how do how, how we really think about what constitutes African studies if African peoples are um, moving, um, you know, across currently, uh, across the Atlantic? And in many ways, you know, the book is not about this portion of the world, but I think the argument applies to the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and other bodies of water and landscapes that African peoples have crossed and recrossed uh, throughout the centuries. So, I think these two studies I think will benefit um from, you know, what the Econ diaspora window provides for these disciplines or these fields to really expand their intellectual boundaries, to expand their, their practical and pragmatic boundaries and if they do so it probably means dissolution or dissolving <laughs> their current boundaries and really kind of reconstituting itself to really match what has been the historical realities uh, with these kinds of African peoples um, moving, um, transforming, uh, and creating, um, you know, social organizations, political communities, and certainly, you know, cultural communities.
0: I want to say that I I take your point um, that you're making, and I, and I understand it very well. Um, and so, your book, in some ways, is a call to um, scholars and teachers of African studies. African diaspora studies and African-American studies to uh, be more inclusive of um, uh, features of the other other disciplines and to take into account uh, these um, uh, various histories and not to be so um, focused on one location. Right. Because there's the there's the movement um, that you that you speak of. Let me ask you this question. How would we do that? I'm I'm cheating in that question because I'm an interested teacher. I mean, okay, I got your book, I read it. I have this 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 conversation with you. Uh, I'm if I put it on my syllabus in the fall, what am I going to do? What what else am I going to do with it? I mean, what what what's
2: okay? Well, 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 certainly. Um, I think this kind of um book and the argument it, it makes um is really, I think, an internal re uh, which would have to prompt certainly as you and I are also teachers prompt some pedagogic changes in terms of how we approach um, these peoples African peoples who are our, our subject uh, and so what I'm saying is that uh, rather than follow the um, previous and in many places current models of conceptualizing African American studies or African American history for instance Um, then um, we would have to... This kind of book kind of forces us to say, well, the boundedness of North America does not work. (laughs) So there has to be another approach, and that approach, I think, is simply this. So um, let's say teaching a course on uh, African-American history to 1865, which is a common course you find across this country. Uh, In such a course... um, Rather than make the geographic scope of the class simply North America, uh, you may rename the course and therefore expand the scope by saying African history in the Americas to 1865 or even 1888, which will certainly apply to um, the domestic uh, ending of chattel enslavement. Of course, Brazil is is the uh, benchmark here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it applies the entire Americas uh, as, as a whole, um, and so therefore, rather than um, simply focused on the common narrative that you find in North America regarding peoples of African descent, which is um, so-called slaves, um, they sharecroppers, and they received their freedom, and Jim Crow, uh, civil rights, and the rest of history. Barack Obama. <laughs> That's the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would mean that one. Um, that as um, I think James Creed has shown in the case of Brazil um, that there was a a constant effort to recreate Africa uh, in in many small and and varying ways of course there's nuances I think we should teach the nuances but also look at the um, the patterns or the the thematic um, impulses so to speak and so um, in North America there were parallel institutions of enslavement Um, that can be comparative. So uh, we may look at, in that same class, um, Cuba, as a a Spanish-speaking colonial um, enterprise, Mm -hmm. um, Brazil, as a Portuguese-speaking enterprise, Suriname, Dutch, um, the former, what is now, Virgin Islands, but the former, uh, St. Thomas, St. Croix, and St. John, as a Danish um, enclave, colonial enclave. And then look at North America um, proper. Um, That is from, I guess, New Hampshire, Maine, down to Florida, and out the west to Texas, California, and so on. And look at them comparatively in terms of the um, shared features, but also the discontinuities between um, these enslaved societies and the ways in which uh, the African experience um, was shaped and itself being shaped by the presence of those African peoples. I think a student will leave that class having a much more fuller and richer experience, comparatively speaking, but also in terms of synthesis, um, boiling down to dominant themes and patterns, than if they took a simply, you know, common African-American course, 865. And so I think the book really forces an instructor, um, if they are interested in teaching, um, to really expand the bounds, geographical bounds, but also therefore um the cultural balance and certainly in terms of approach, doing this comparatively so that, you know, students are much more um enriched and informed to say, hey, North America is not exceptional. <laughs> in fact it was it was part of the rule in terms of how state societies function. However, there were important, you know, nuances or differences that made a Carol- South Carolina South Carolina. That made a um New York in New York that made you know Kansas to Kansas, and also that made, let's say, um, Salvador uh, in the state of Bahia in Brazil, that made um, Santiago, Havana, and Cuba what they were. So at the same time, you can teach nuances and still teach overarching themes and patterns. And I think a student and a professor, um, he or she, will leave that classroom um, with a much more, I think, healthier those um, of uh, intellectual nutrients they'll be much more informed I think they'll have they'll see the big cross currents and connections and disconnections between these African peoples rather than simply to be bounded by North America as the main organizing principle for teaching and certainly for research and writing
0: I am going to take up your call in my next African American Studies class uh, and since I've read the book um, I want to recommend it again to other readers because I think that that this is going to be a nice addition. Uh I noticed um that the cover on this hardback copy is very I mean it has a a, a very um colorful and uh interesting photograph. Um and did, did did you have a say in the in the in this cover? Actually I did. Um uh, the cover
2: and all the photos inside, I-, I chose some of which I took the photos of. Um, this cover is from an early mm, 18th century um, collection of photos and text. Uh, I think it was a Frenchman who was in Suriname in the first part of 18th century, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, made these, you know, watercolor uh, sketches. And um, you know, this one was taken from his collection. And what that photo is, I think is very much emblematic of the, um, you know, Akan presence in the Americas in that uh, what you find in the cover, um, since you've read the book already, but certainly for your um, listeners, what you see on the cover is actually um, leaders of a maroon community mm-hmm. um, going to a meeting. And you can see the different kinds of um, clothing that indicates um, status and stature. Uh, But you also see that, um, you know, the clothing also gives us insights into their their cultural and political world because Maroons, um, at least in their con variety, uh, they had to accomplish, I think, two simultaneous goals. They had to, one, um, create culture and create political and social organization um, in the context of constant war. Whether it's with the British British colonists or Mm the Dutch colonists or the Danish colonists, and I think second, you know, they had to also, you know, had some internal dialogue whereby they had to decide which African cultural uh, ideas, uh, institutions, and symbols would they appropriate and take as their own in terms of forging Um, not new identities but identities that fit, you know, the realities. Of fighting wars, uh, of creating culture, literally on the run, and basically decided and said, "Look, you Akan peoples, um, you're skilled in firearms, then you will lend um, that, you know, knowledge and skill to our, you know, constant engagement with these colonists. You um, Mandé peoples from the Gambia um, region of West Africa will lend." You know, your skills uh, in warfare and your skills um, in certain um, trades, like, like blacksmithing, to creating community. You, uh, people from uh, what was then Popo um, and Dahomey, which is now part of Benin and Togo, in West Africa, mm-hmm. would lend your skills um, to developing these spiritual uh, ritual practices. Uh, and and so on. You go down the list. You, but Congo people from what what is now the Congo Angola region, will lend, you know, your spiritual skill, but also uh, your um, skill in, you know, social organization to bear on how we design our communities. And what you have, therefore, is not necessarily, uh, um, you know, a, a, a patchwork, that have no logic. What you have there is a very skillful, uh, it's a very uh, sometimes painful process because it means um, letting some institutions die so others can live. It's also, uh, I think, a very sophisticated process whereby um, you know, there was a rule uh, assigned um, where people had a composite culture but still had an attachment to certain affinities that were their own. Um, and you found it in music, for instance, there's, there's, there's in Chapter 6 a look at um, a musical composition that uh, Hans Mons, um the botanist, um, uh, physician and, and the like, uh, who came to Jamaica in the 17th century, he recorded a tune uh, which had uh, what he called Papa and Kuramante uh, variants and also Congo variants. And what you found is that um, there was shared, but also distinct um, registers for each group. So for the Akan you found that in the upper register of this composition, this melody, uh, was strong Akhan um, language and words that are traceable. Um, but then in terms of the instrumentation, you found that the Bakongo also, also predominated in, in that particular part of the and so in other words, this song gives you kinda of mnemonic device to see how these Africans played together. In other words, how they forged culture and community. But at the same time, there were distinct Akan, you know residue that mm-hmm. the Akan descendants could identify and there were distinct um uh, Bakongo residue that the Bakongo people could identify as their own. So in the once they were both collective and you know, individual at the same time. Uh it's like I I can be you know, a father Uh, I can be a husband. I can be a professor. And these identities don't create conflict. They're simply just what um, dimensions of my personhood. And I think these Africans saw it in the same way, that they could be still a con as much as they can remember, as much as they could practice under the conditions where they faced, but still be part of a composite, a collective uh, idea. And I think that that composite idea... uh, which is what I argue for in terms of how we see culture, is much more powerful in terms of explaining, um, you know, these convergences and even divergences mm-hmm. in the Americans.
0: Let's, let's talk some more about the content of the book. Um, personally, I was attracted throughout to the performative elements. Um, one of them is, is the music and the recordings and the discussion about instruments, etc., um, some of that you just mentioned. But also, each chapter is prefaced by and a con-proverb that you translate. Um, how did you go about choosing those proverbs and, and, and what do the epigraphs have to do with each chapter? Oh, sure. Um, that's a good question. Mm,
2: the process for choosing the proverbs for each chapter um, wasn't difficult, but it was, I, I wanted to find problems that would capture the, some of the uh, ideas in each chapter, uh, which was difficult because uh, as you found as a reader, and I'm sure your listeners who may pick up a copy of the book will find themselves, that there's a range of ideas, uh, there's a range of experiences, um, even though some are shared. And so um, the Proverbs, I think, to set, I chose to set a certain tone. And so, for instance, um, I think as we spoke briefly about before we got on um, the program, in the last chapter, which is, I think is a powerful proverb uh, that kind of points to some of the um, contradictions and inconsistencies mm-hmm. between um, those who are considered the older folks, the keepers of the culture, so to speak, and the younger generation. And as you and I know very well, there's always a younger generation in terms of how humans have moved through time. So it, it, it points to this uh, conflict, but uh, I think a moment of clarity between a current generation
0: and those that precede them. The chapter, is, I'm sorry, the chapter you're speaking about is the diaspora discourses, a Con spiritual praxis, and the claims of cultural identity. Would you read that proverb? Ah, uh,
2: sure. Actually, it's not in front of me right now. Okay. Um, you want me to read the, the, the tree or, or the English translation? Both, please. Or both. Okay. Okay. So this is the the tree. Or a conversion of the proverb. And the translation is roughly the children of today say we should not do things in the way of our ancestors anymore. So, why is it that they do not take out one of the three stones? used to hold up the cooking pot and just leave two?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, you know, I thought the problem was profound because it's one of these generational, intergenerational questions that I'm sure the Akan and other Africans had to have had multiple times. That is, deciding um, pretty much what I pointed to a few moments ago, deciding, you know, which cultural ideas, institutions, and practices should continue and which should or going to, to kind of advance um, and it, it, it's, this, it's this question which I don't see the tension but I'll I, conflict I see more so as a you know, moment of clarity in terms of how are we going to strategically proceed if we're going to proceed as a community and proceed as a viable people and in specific terms the proverb points to um, the old, not the old let me say the, the, uh, the way that um, one would actually form stove uh in Kama'akan communities um in so rural communities and so there are three stones in the shape of a triangle um that is what we refer to in chi as mukase uh buchia, and that is the what you might call english the kitchen <laughs> because that's where the cooking uh socializing portions that occur uh over the fire um and so when you take away one of those three stones, uh, what you're doing is actually, again, you know, removing a very um, important portions of one's cultural outlook and cultural reality. And in doing so, um, the proverb raised the question to say, hey, you present generation, you young folks, um, why do you badmouth the way we cook? when you, too, use the three-stone pot. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, and and I think this has relevance in terms of the chapter, in terms of cultural practice and claims identities, that in Ghana today, you find that there is a rampant um, spread of Pentecostalism, and there's certain kind of fanaticism and certain kinds of uh, obsession with that reality. And one can only truly know if they've been to Ghana, or they've read enough to get a sense, but... The point here is that these uh, younger folks who have run towards Pentecostalism are therefore departing from their own indigenous spiritualities. And in the course of that departure, they demonize the indigenous spiritualities. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're sure you're familiar with the vernacular as um, devil's work, as um, mm-hmm. Satanism. And there's a whole range of caricatures that come out of their mouth. Yet and still, in these new Pentecostal churches, um, the Akan drum, which you, you I think you saw an image of one or two in new yep. mm-hmm. um, the new text. The Atunpain or uh, other kinds of, of drums are used in the ceremonies in the church. Um, there are animal sacrifices um, that one we use to cleanse the village or to create you know, kind of a sense of resolve in the community given the, the magnitude of the problem. All these ritual practices that these individuals claim that they, they want to have nothing to do with they're engaging in, in the actual context of Pentecostalism, at least what they construe as Pentecostalism. Um, and there's more. I mean, the Adinkra symbols, which uh, you find, um, you know, replete in portions of African-American culture and uh, North, North American variety anyway. The kente cloth, those ideas and symbols have been appropriated. And so the Proverbs pieces, this, this conundrum that they find themselves in at once, um, these kinds of individuals um, demonize and see indigenous culture practices and spiritualities as the demonic inverse of their, you know, quote, pure Christian practice. But at the same time, um, they're like, um, you know, the vampires in European mythology where the, 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 the lifeblood of what they do depend on basically um, pillaging, like the lifeblood from indigenous culture. And so indigenous culture becomes kind of a life support for them but at the same time, they are, they're cursing, they're demonizing life support. <laughs> and so it, it's that, you know, uncomfortable situation that the proverb speaks to. Wow.
0: Very nice uh, and interesting. Um, there's another uh, proverb that I think would allow us to talk more about the content of the book. And it's in the first chapter. Um, this one, if you wouldn't mind reading that one as well. Um, and then I, I want to ask you a question about it okay
2: sure um the first chapter which is entitled on diaspora and their cause in the americas uh, the opening proverb goes mm-hmm. uh, which roughly means uh when you go turn your eyes to look back and come home frequently
0: that is absolutely beautiful the- this this uh, this proverb, as you um, explain in the um, in the opening chapter, mm-hmm. uh, has a lot to do with the spiritual connection to the homeland, and um, and that if I understood the development of that idea correctly throughout the course of the book, that that there is always a way to return, even if it's not a physical return. Mm-hmm. And 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 it seems that the book is also arguing for uh developing a a um a spiritual relationship with um with the homeland or with Africa. Is that right? Um
2: well not so much. Well I, I agree with your your reading, um, you know, up until the, the last clause. Not so much as spiritual connection with a homeland. Um but I, I think in relation to the proverb, the, the argument is, is that, one, uh, in the past maybe decade or so, there's been a mushrooming been a, <laughs> increase of scholarship on African diaspora um, histories. And in those histories, which are roughly organized around international slave trade, um, they tend to quantify what is arguably unquantifiable, because mm-hmm. we will never know the number of Africans who were, um, those were raided, captured, and landed in barracoons and, um, living and dying on the, uh, the slave vessel, of course, coming to whatever place society they found themselves, uh, we'll never, I mean, because there's, there's so much, um, factors that play into, um, those who died in course of the capture and the raid, within the hold. those that were not notated in the logs of these captains, who were, on average, very unscrupulous too. Um, you know, murderers uh, in terms of um, the accounts that we do have. Uh, so in that quantification, uh, I think a, a major um, problem, therefore, is focusing on aggregate numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the book, uh, my focus is not on the numbers per se, um, even though I do make a numerical argument. That is, uh, in spite of the small, relatively small numbers of the con, their weight in terms of um, themes of maroonage, um, themes of spiritual and cultural community formation. Um, these themes, they provide a very important and substantive window, but also content for so us to think about how the African diaspora quilt came to be and how that quilt is still unfolding because uh, African students, as of last year, were the most mobile students in the world. they found everywhere in the world. In fact, there's no country on earth that doesn't have one single, Person of African descent or ancestry mm. um, they're everywhere, and so um you know I think focusing on the numbers I think creates a new kind of mythology because it's abstraction I mean deal with people that have abstractions, uh they can be manipulated and put into a kind of calculus that reduces by even ignores the humanity um, and so you know in looking back I, I think we have to look back with a, with the eye on the humanity and on the subjectivity of these people who form the topics of, of our books, dissertations, you know, and and peer review articles. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one point of the proverb. The second point is that because these peoples um, had a human experience um, within a certain cultural frame from which they came, then I think we have to scholastically, you know, provide proper burial. Um, you know, there are... Billions of African peoples, whose, whose bones or what's left of it, anyway, um, lie not only across the Atlantic, but you know, almost every puddle or pond of water, um, almost in this North American landscape, has the butt of an African, mm-hmm. and you know, I think they deserve to be buried properly um, so that they can go home, and however they see that in terms of their cultural references. So they're kind, of, uh, not exclusively, certainly. Know, they had certain rituals which they employed up into the nineteenth century. in Places like Guyana and other parts of the Americas whereby there are rituals. In fact there's a compo ritual um that was meant to kinda of give someone, you know, this uh the ability as spiritualists, um, to cross kind of cosmic divide between, you know, then and now and therefore find a way to go back home, you know. Um and that home that not necessarily physically returned
0: mm-hmm. even
2: though in the past 30 years, there have been a number of diasporic Africans, for instance, whose um, bodies have been returned to Ghana, for example, as one possible homeland. Um, so that's one way, but it's not the most, um, certainly the most feasible. <laughs> uh, but I think many, you know, in the past few centuries who came before us um, saw other ways to return. I think their spirituality or their belief system provided the vehicle to make that return. You know, So in their hearts and minds, you know, they found a way to Know, say to go back home. Home necessarily a place, but I think it's a cultural space to say that you know I am whatever resolved to you know the fact mm-hmm. um, of you know being here in the Americas, but also you know I, I, I want a resolution because for the econ um, becoming an ancestor is a very important process, and as such, there you are know, four categories of being an ancestor, and they're not all the same; they have different unequal qualities. I won't go into that, but what I will say is that, um, you know, many of the Akan peoples, you know, um, for instance, had certain rules regarding warfare, which as Maroons, they were in constant warfare. So, uh, you found that many Akans, you know, would actually commit suicide. Hmm. But for the Akan, suicide is only appropriate, culturally appropriate, if it occurs in the context of war. Uh, If you do it outside of that context, you're a coward. And you mm-hmm. won't be buried properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll be uh, not only dismembered, you'll be unremembered. <laughs> if I can make that word. <laughs> up. Uh, you're not. You will not form part of someone's memory uh, because you died without honor. However, if it's in the context of warfare, you that's honorable. And as the, as I'm sure you came across in your reading, and I think groups will read if they um, get a chance to pick up a copy, they'll see that in number of cases, whether it's certain that whether of whether it is other parts of the Americas, uh, in this context of warfare, you found a number of suicide, whether it's the, the so-called um, riots and insurrections in um, New York City, you know, where I currently live, uh, in the early 18th century, you know, a number of them would commit suicide in the context of war. Hmm.
0: Uh Could you give us a sense of the literary quality of the book by reading a passage? Uh Sure. Well, I'm not sure about
2: lyrical lyric qualities, but...
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah. um, that, uh,
2: maybe more, most of your department. <laughs> but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Um, i pick a small poster from the um, the first chapter that I think gives you uh, and the listeners um, a good feel. I'll start at the bottom of page 4. In the Americas, the Akam people became identified through a somewhat uneven set of characteristics that made them, in the eyes of planters and other Africans, valued as agriculturalists and unskilled laborers, endowed with great physical strength, as practitioners of indigenous African therapeutics and spirituality, and as maroons and freedom seekers. These characteristics did not mean that Khan had a monopoly on resistance or maroonage. What well, is clear is that Akan men, women, children, and their further the progeny did fulfill these roles in some places and in some historical moments more than others, and that many were inconsistently assigned the pervasive identities of Mina or Kuremanti and its variants across distinct linguistic and temporal landscapes. In these historical moments, they can kind of bring into sharp relief the diasporic themes of maroonage, resistance, betrayal, and freedom, but they also complicate these themes for all who are delimited by an assumption of coexistence within the same deculturalizing and neo-European social order. Maroons lived on the periphery of the social order and depended upon it for concessions or provisions, while other freedom seekers carved out contested social and political spaces within laws and limits of that order. SummerCon went further. They envisioned, as was the case in the Danish and Dutch colonies, a complete overthrow of that draconian social order of European import with one of their own making, and based on foundational cultural understandings, thus contributing a significant lens by which study a layered African diasporic culture, experience, and identity.
0: I think I was right when I said literary quality. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. What do you want the readers ultimately to take away from this book?
2: Hmm. Uh, Well, I haven't thought about this before. Um, I think ultimately, I'd like the reader to take away, I think, three feeling points. Um, One, that uh, one of the best ways to interpret or to understand uh, African diaspora experiences and histories um, is to begin that interpretation or reading um, through those people's African history, mm-hmm. and then concurrently with the diasporic experiences in the Americas. I think looking at the experiences of specific, but also in the larger African communities, through so these parallel approaches will, I think, provide a fuller um, perspective. Uh, on those people's and I think it will, again, mutually inform, but dissolve the boundaries established by African-American, African-Diasporic, and African history as academic disciplines. Two, uh, the reader, I think, will take away from this the thematic uh, importance of spirituality and uh, spiritual culture, as I call it. Um, in the lives of these Akan, but also in broader African communities uh, wherever they found them, so that these spiritualities were not, um, you know, some demonic inverse of Judeo-Christianity, nor was it uh, a perversion thereof. That it was these were these were sophisticated, um, wholesome, and um, almost indistinguishable from the general cultural outlook of the peoples who practiced them. Uh, third and lastly, um, you know, it's my hope. That the reader would pursue the studies further, that is, see this as a, an important book, um, not so much for my pleasure, but more so something that kind of gives a springboard, mm-hmm. you know, to look at other African communities. And I think make that very uh, comparative, but also you know, synthesis of these African experiences. Because I think ultimately, you know, what I try to do in, in this book and other works is um, get the stories right. Um, because often, and I saw you experience this in some ways, as you know, as a as a teacher, as a professor, that um, you know, I think we hope pedagogically and certainly for the general populace that people get the story right first, and then we can have the debates that are important about the questions and the issues the stories raise, rather than the other way around, that is, people will raise the issues and questions before getting the story right, and I think if we look at how. <laughs> My <laughs> um, no, she's excited about getting the story right, too. So, uh, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, if we look at, for example, in, in, in the field of law, which provides a good analogy, is that we can't adjudicate or we cannot come to a decision based on um, two or more parties involved in a certain crime or situation unless we get the story right first. Uh, and that's what investigators do. They collect the much evidence or what they should do anyway in practice is to collect as much evidence as possible related to the questions um and, and the circumstances of the case the context and marry context with content and in doing so you know pursue getting the story right. I don't mean we'll get it right all the time, but pursue that mm-hmm. and then once we you know in that pursuit, we can then engage in the questions that are raised by the story rather than you know you know having these questions i I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, I'm not an avid online person, um, and I, I, you know, grudgingly have a Facebook account. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) But in one instance, you know, there was a recent discussion, um, you know, regarding uh, the new, well, publication of the, um, you know, scholar Manning Marable. Oh, yes, right. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, many of many folks that were in discussion, you know, familiar with his work, but also this book on Malcolm X. Um, so there's a discussion, and, um, you know, I made a point, I tried to make a point that, you know, there, there's very, you know, harsh and disparaging remarks landed on Mary Marable, and I said, wait, I said, we're having a dialogue of the dead. Both he and Malcolm have passed. Mm-hmm. We can't engage out of them in a way that would satisfy the questions we have. So we're kind of debating with you know if real. I said, look, let's focus on you know how we get the story right, whether it's Malcolm's story or another person's of and defense story. Let's get the story right first, and then raise the question. But people were just landing these what they considered you know heavyweight blows in terms of their questioning of Maribu's intentions, integrity. I said, look,
0: right, you mm-hmm.
2: know, in this dialogue of the dead, you can't ask those questions. It's impossible. <laughs> right, you know, Manny is not here to defend himself neither is Malcolm to defend himself against Maribel's interpretation, you know, um, let's, you know, push towards say, hey, this book, whatever its flaws, by Manny Maribel, for instance, uh, let's see how he gets it right and where he doesn't get it right. And then, in pursuit of that, getting the story right, we can raise the questions that need to be raised. But don't launch the questions first without getting the story right. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and so I hope readers take away, you know, that, um, Pursuing getting the story right, um, and I, you know, hopefully, this book of mine is one contribution towards that process.
0: Nice, that's that's uh, good advice and uh, a, a good challenge for the readers. Uh, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Quasi, and so uh, I want to ask you one last question. And since you've given birth, so to speak, to this major project, um, this this wonderful book, are you now spending time? Uh, Focusing on being a dad, or do you have any other projects uh, that you're working on? Uh, Both. (laughs) Um, Both. um, Well, being a father, it's it's,
2: it's, um, first and foremost. Um, But right now, yeah, I'm working on um, three other projects. And I'll just quickly share them with your listeners. Um, On the theme of getting the story right, I'm actually working on a biography of an indigenous healer from Ghana who Mm lived in the 20th century but left little of a paper trail or record. And so he poses, you know, one of the fundamental challenges of, quote, African studies. Uh, I think history as a whole, uh, and, and that people who will leave little or any paper trail um, become written out of historical record mm. uh, by default. And so I'm not trying to write him in as a kind of vindicationist posture. I'm, I'm also looking at the ways in which to allow, you know, his voice, however small or fragmentary, you know, to find their way into the, um, you know, the memory and into um, the literature, you know, of of our world, Uh, because I think he, this subject of mine, um, and someone who I never met, um, so there's no personal attachment to him, but what I read about him, the things I read about him, um, you know, fascinated me about this person, um, you know. And so I'm looking at this biography, um, one, to tell his story as best as I can, and two, uh, to offer it as, as a kind of, you know, modest, um, you know, approach to excavating African voices and perspectives on their lives. Because um, I think biography is a powerful teaching, too, and um, everyone loves a good story. <laughs> uh, even some of my students who pretend to have a medical complication that prevents them from reading, you know. Yeah. Um, even they too, I think, love a good story. So I'm looking at biography as, I know, in teaching two, but also as a way to escalate, um, his African voice and his perspective on his life. Mm-hmm. Um, the second project is actually, um, more so a global, um, extension of the akan diaspora where uh, my goal is to, um, write a coherent and cohesive, um, story, stories, um, That combines, you know, all the known African diasporas, plural, um, across Asian landscape, across Africa, across, or even Eurasia, I should say, um, into the Americas. So these, you know, large numbers of movements and people across time, I want to put them into one cohesive, um, you know, narrative. Wow. Um, And uh, I've already, well, actually, this time I'm going to start writing, begin writing anyway. Um, and so maybe, you know, another two years before I may see a complete draft, but that's my, that's what I'm looking at. And the idea that motivates me here is the idea of not diasporic histories, which I think has limitations, but mostly African world histories. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been engaged also with, um, you know, writing at the scale of world history and this book of mine, I think will, you know, fill some gaps, but also contribute, hopefully.
0: Well that sounds major.
2: Idea of african history. Mm. And what's the third? And the third or final one uh, is, you know, actually, uh, probably I just finished up, I edited uh, a historical reader. uh, It's it's called the Khan Studies in Africa and the Diaspora, the historical reader. And what it does, I think, hopefully as a model, um, the first half, about maybe um, 300 manuscript pages are a range of sources Portuguese, Dutch, German, British, English, uh, Spanish sources from the 15th century to the early 20th century um, that focuses in some ways on the Akan peoples, whether in not Ghana or West Africa. The second part is a collection of um, essays, um, um, some unpublished, some published, um, by leading scholars in the, in the field, you might say, um, of Akan studies uh, and um they provide essays that is perspectives on the sources for which was in the first portion. So it gives the reader, the student, the scholar, I think a very important um source, source book and reference, but it also gives them a ways in which historians have used those sources in terms of you know, hammering or forging out
0: um their perspectives.
2: Sounds um, like so I'm excited by that.
0: Uh I am too. Sounds like that uh you're going to be back on the program again soon. <laughs> that do out? Um,
2: that's um, well, I did my part um, I think I read the Proust and Gals, so that should be
0: out probably in early fall And you think that would be a companion text to um, your monograph? Um, it could serve that purpose but I,
2: I was looking for maybe a, a, a wider um, wider in the sense that um, it would provide Then think um, you know one of the things I think as teachers we struggle with it, are you know finding sources that you know is in one place. <laughs> right. And so we struggle with course pack, We struggle with second text. Um, so it could be treated as a companion for this book, but I wouldn't want to limit it, um, and I mean limit it in a good way, mm-hmm. limit it to the book. I, I would prefer that people see it as, you know, a model of what has been done for other African societies so that we have a collection of sources. So say, you know, um, let's say you want to teach that um, African American history course that I mentioned as an example early on. Um, now you have, you know, sources. Um, not, and the point is, is that it's not only um, a, a, a text used for the diaspora. It's also an African history text. So these sources, for instance, they described in varying degrees uh, events, personalities, and so on, on a portion of the West African coast. So you get perspectives on how these uh, observers... Um, interacted with and viewed, and certainly with their biases, um, described these African peoples over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you get the African history perspective as well as, you know, uh, the Diaspora's perspective, which I think can do well in Diaspora studies classes. They can do well in um, classes in African American studies, Um, even literature classes that deal with, um, you know, how travelers of the world see other people they encounter but I'm envisioning it has multiple uses in history and anthropology and certainly in you know, African American studies African studies classes
0: well I have enjoyed this conversation immensely I hope that the uh, listeners uh, enjoy it just the same and I want to thank you for, for um, uh, having this conversation with me today well thank you very much for having me on
1: we've been listening to Kwesi Kunadu speak about such topics as the integrated disciplines of African studies, African diaspora studies, and African-American studies, and how professors can take an integrated approach to their study of African history and African-American history. He presents us with a call, a challenge, so to speak, to get the history straight before moving on and getting that history straight in our disciplinary focuses of African studies, African diaspora studies, or African American studies. This rich and lively exchange with Kwesi Kanadu shows just how much insight can be gleaned from his new provocative and informative new book, The Akan Diaspora in the Americas* Oxford University Press 2010. I enjoyed it and I know you will too.